Thank you for listening to This Podcast is Haunted. A brief content warning for our listeners. The following episode contains mention of suicide. Thank you again, and please enjoy the show. Welcome, spooks and spirits, ghouls and ghosts. Take a seat around the campfire. But beware, this podcast is haunted. Ah! Yeah, was that the uh, was that the great sigh of exhaustion? Because it's been a hell of a week here in America. <laughs> Once again, apologies to the rest of the world. Uh, I guess apologies to the rest of the world. Sorry about all the times that we stage coups in your country, but mm-hmm. hey, we're doing it to ourselves now. We're doing it to ourselves. Uh, it's it's one of those things where you gotta you gotta take a deep breath and laugh, and but then also cry. I'm uh, running out of giggles, honestly. Like mm-hmm. I I was I was there on when when they thought the guy, I, and it it did turn out to be a rumor I'm reading now. Um, that that guy tased himself in the balls to death. Damn it! I know. <laughs> I have so few moments of joy. <laughs> well, you can still take joy in the lady who got trampled to death on the Capitol stairs while waving a flag that Carrying says "Don't tread on me." Don't tread on me. That's beautiful. You can't write comedy like that. It's yeah. fucked up though, and it's uh, real fucked up. And we shouldn't be laughing, but also like but also, we can because fuck them. Now, um, where I stop laughing. <sighs> We lost a mm-hmm. second uh, police officer today. Um, oh, so. yeah. That's a good segue to there's going to be a content warning on this whole entire oh, episode. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about that for just a hot second. Guys, mm-hmm. uh, my story's a bummer. I wrote the bummer story again. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I'm saying uh, it in here, a cute... Here I was thinking, oh, let's let's talk about something fun and lighthearted. <laughs> Every, and every goddamn time, Kate, you betray me. Every time we have the opportunity to talk about something fun and lighthearted. You betray me. Hey, Jen, let's talk about circuses. Ha 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 ha. Let's all cry. Yeah, I think we, I guess we do it to each other, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You got me on circuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when we have the opportunity to tell a fun and light story, instead, we're going to drag you down to the depths of depression. Mm. Um, so, uh, trigger warning on today's episode. But just, we're going to talk a lot about suicide today, and it sucks. Um, and mm-hmm. if there's anybody you, who, if you ever need to talk, if you're having suicidal ideation, uh, please know that there's always somebody listening. Uh, reach out to the National Suicide Hotline. Mm-hmm. Uh, more details in the show notes. Uh, and in the spirit of the events that we were just talking about, I saw a video on TikTok that I thought was very inspiring, that if you are having any of these feelings, just know that if you stay with us, you will probably outlive Mitch McConnell. So yeah. And Rush Limbaugh and Donald Trump, to be honest. So I think that should be that if, if you stay alive for no other reason, right. Spite is a perfectly good reason. Yes. And because space mom, Carrie Fisher wants you to. So we're going to talk some more about that too. Space mom, Carrie Fisher wants you to take your pills. So yes, that's going to, that's, that's a theme that's going to come up in my story. Um, so yeah, things have been a little wild in addition to things being wild in the United States Capitol, they've Mm -hmm. been a little wild in our Facebook group. Yes, friends. Uh, let's, 
Let's take a deep breath. Let's um, all have a quick come to G- come, well come to Hades meeting. Come I don't know. To come Lilith. to the Green um, Man. <laughs> Who just choose the god of your choice or the higher yeah. power or the no power at all? We're gonna come to that. The Black Philip. Um, <laughs> Do you want to live deliciously? Cool. Stop being a dick in our group. <laughs> no, but in all serious, uh, we have we. Uh, Kate and I were very quick to jump on this, mostly because we've been part of other groups that have sadly imploded and turned from very nice communities to not existing at all. And uh, I know we don't want that to happen to our group, and I know that you don't want that to happen to our group. So this is our friendly reminder, again, in addition to what we posted in the group, to just... Yeah, just be friendly. Be cool, if you, guys. <laughs> it's not always our job to challenge people. It's mm-hmm. not always our job to tell people when they're wrong. Yeah. They're allowed to be wrong. And mm-hmm. we don't need... I know, haha. for those of you who are Facebook friends with me and you see me leftist shitposting all the time oh, yeah. and like cutting... You know, I've cut out so many members of my family for being absolute assholes Mm -hmm. you're probably a little surprised i'm saying this but i'll be Mm -hmm. honest i care deeply about the people in our group i care more about the people in our group than than a lot of things and i would like you guys to be nice to each other Mm -hmm. um for the most part it's not a problem at all we've had like five instances and the fact that like this is like the biggest problem we've had to deal with is incredible in five years no less you know like Mm -hmm. tiff runs a tight ship yeah. Um, and I think that's fantastic, but I really, I would really hate to lose the Facebook group. We mm-hmm. have been threatened by Facebook. Yeah. Um, if, mm-hmm. if we continue to have things that are self-reported as offensive or yeah. reported content generally, and some of the shit you're reporting is just silly. Like the picture of Nicolas Cage stealing the Declaration of Independence during the riot. Which honestly, that I was funny. Was that was funny like... as hell. <laughs> but again, <laughs> when Facebook gets requests like that, they threaten to shut us down. And yeah. even if they don't shut us down, before they shut us down, if we're all fighting with each other, I'll fucking nuke the group myself. I will press yeah. that button. I'm not bigger Guys, than that. Y'all, I I I saved y'all, I would have you know. Yeah. <laughs> Kate was ready to pull the plug. Oh, I was gonna put you guys in timeout for a week. <laughs> yep. Um, but the, I mean, okay, yeah, it's it's I don't know what I was gonna say. Um Mama bear don't play. As I as I said in my post on the group, you know, like Kate and I are very upfront about our views, but when it comes to the group, we generally play a pretty hands-off role because we don't want to come in there and be like, well, you know, you know who we are, so this is what we say. Um, and it has to be our way. It doesn't. Yeah, and so like we, we want uh, you all to create your own community there, and so we kind of don't, we try not to intervene. Uh, <laughs> we try. Um, and so when things do get a little spicy, like if it gets really bad, definitely, definitely report it. Um, but but by tagging us, just be like, don't, hey, Kate, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is maybe a problem. Yeah. And I'll or be like, if, oh, shit, this is a problem. I mean, if it was outrageously like insensitive and really bad, like, yeah. yeah I'll tear that, that shit right down. Pull that trigger. I but, got no uh, trouble tearing down a bully. Yeah, but we're also not there to intervene and really get into the meat of arguments because that's just not our role. In the group, right. So. Also, there shouldn't be arguments. We should only be saying nice things to each other <laughs> because the world is a really hard place and everybody's dealing with a huge struggle. Yeah, like, and I think to say that like 
oh, don't talk about politics in our group. It's not that we're trying to ignore politics. Uh, it's also a little disingenuous to who we are. I mean, we talk about I, politics all the time. clearly do not ignore politics, um, but I think it's just in the best interests of maintaining a good community. And I think we... We don't want to turn people away because our group is about learning and about acceptance. And I hope that everyone can have a chance to learn and to grow and to, you know. Yeah, we have such a beautiful, diverse group that I don't want anybody to be taken away from that experience of enjoying you guys. You're fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Let's I think wrap that's, it up. Yeah. I think that's all that needs to be said on that subject. Um, Congratulations to Tiff uh, for putting the group together. Yes. We wouldn't have done this without you, and Ooh, we are also deeply there, appreciative. There is a Discord now, oh, yeah. which I still have not joined, but I will. I believe um, Emily set that up. Yeah. So, uh, Gracias. We'll find, find the link to that in the Facebook group. I'm not going to post, post right. it elsewhere. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, it's somewhere. But yeah. We'll find it. Um, yeah. And you know what, Emily, if you could post it again and multiple times so people can 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 get on that, that'd be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, Jen, do you want to talk about really sad shit? Let's get into it. Um, you'll do your sad shit, and then we'll finish off with something a little bit more whimsical. Beautiful. <laughs> so our theme today is uh, authors in the occult, basically, right? Ooh. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that was, Jen and I love a theme. We do. <laughs> so. Well, do we want to talk about, because I, I, we, I was inspired to, with this theme from uh, our, our dear friend and editor, Danny, who had a wonderful date night idea. Yeah, uh, to, yeah, 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 please. Do a mystery uh, solving thing uh, with his lovely joy friend, Ira, and uh, they wanted Also, how much do I love the term joy friend? It's fantastic. I love it so much. Um, but they were they wanted to theme it around uh, the movie Knives Out, and I was like, God, that's a fucking great movie, and also mysteries. Fucking love them. Let's do so it. So great. Yeah. So, so shout great. out to you, Danny. Yeah. We love you. We really do. <laughs> All right, so... The mystery in Knives Out uh, goes around with an author. Um, and the author that I wanted to discuss today is Sylvia Plath. <laughs> Just uh, going to be a great time. <laughs> we're all going to have fun today. Yeah. Um, actually, what can you tell me about Sylvia Plath? If you were to just pick three words for her. Um, I Well, okay. So I one of my good friends from high school is the raddest and has got a, a Sylvia Plath quote. Uh, the I am, I am, I am, uh-huh. um, tattooed across her collarbone with a oh, that's heartbeat, cool. and it's fabulous. Uh, but I, I do also know how uh, her life ends. So, <laughs> Honestly, uh, one of the things that I read in my series of documents here is that her death is actually what Sylvia Plath is best known for. Yes, I believe so. She died via suicide. And do you know what method? Yes. Go ahead. Well, isn't it a spoiler? No. I, okay. This is not and about in, her. Okay. And I don't want to make this about her death. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, she very famously sticks her head in her oven. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very 1950s. It's very, this is the end of Housewives and, um, you know, the, the blighted genius woman. Mm. Uh, so Sylvia Plath, if you were to really put three things about her, you would probably know that she was a writer. She committed mm-hmm. suicide, and she's beloved by feminists. Yes. That's all I could have told you about her before I started this research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she had a really fantastic and just expansive life. And a lot of that included a relationship with the occult. Really? Yes. 
I had no idea. It's surprising, right? Because you Mm -hmm. think of this very sanitized, leave it to beaver 1950s world, Mm -hmm. and then surprise, dark magic. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. Surprising. So she was born in 1932 in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, She spent most of her life in Massachusetts, in fact. Um, And she died in 1963 by her own hand. Mm-hmm. Um, she, her parents were both immigrants. Her mother was Austrian. Her father was Prussian. And her father was kind of this larger-than-life character in her memory. Uh, mm-hmm. She wrote about him frequently, and her future husband, Ted Hughes, also captured some of, his, some of her memories in his book, Birthday Letters. Uh, we're going to talk about Ted Hughes a lot, so let's just put a big asterisk on that motherfucker. Sure. <laughs> oh, Spoiler. I don't have a whole lot of positive feelings about Ted fucking Hughes. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm you picking up on that? Impression. <laughs> uh, so her father, Otto, died about a week after her eighth birthday. And she never quite got over that grief. She was always kind of looking for him. Around that same time, she published her first poem in a Boston newspaper. She was eight years old. And uh, she would have 50 more publications of her novels, um, well, of her short stories, rather, um, prose and poems before she attended, before she would graduate high school. So she was fairly prolific, even for a kid. Um, A lot of her work from her early days is somewhat, I don't know, people might call it uh, illusionary, Hmm. um, in that she is kind of mimicking the great poets who went before her, sort of like learning from their doings. Uh, So like you can kind of see William Butler Yeats in some of her work and Emily Mm -hmm. Browning and and stuff like that. Her themes, even then, are fairly naturalistic but dark. Blood, Hmm. birth, the moon, things like that. Very goth. Yeah, she's she's a little goth kid. Yeah. Um, In 1950, she attended Smith University. Of course she did. Sure, yeah. Right? Like, where else would you have gone as a, <laughs> as a well-bred young woman in 1950s New England? <laughs> well, Wellesley, but you know. Right. Um, so she became the editor of the Smith Review. She won all sorts of awards. Um, she even got a kind of Devil Wears Prada position with Mademoiselle Magazine. Amazing. Yeah. The trouble with it, uh, that it was as bad as it was for the character Andy in The Devil Wears Prada. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not what she wanted at all. Andrea. Right. <laughs> and actually all of that led to her first suicide attempt in 1953. Oh. She collected a bunch of sleeping pills and climbed into the crawl space underneath her mother's home. Oh. Uh, and she was, she was found in time, obviously. Um, and she spent the next six months in a sanatorium. Uh, she was getting insulin shock therapy and electroshock therapy. Jesus. Yeah. They effectively tortured her into Mm. mental health. Um, and that is not a way to create stability. No, doesn't sound like it. (laughs) Eventually she is somewhat grateful for the electric shock, or at least she writes that she is in her confessional poems. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to come back to that idea. So, six months in the sanatorium, she eventually seems to recover, and she returns to Smith College, where she graduates with all the honors, and she wins a Fulbright scholarship to Cambridge University Newnham College. Hmm. 
Um, Newnham was one of the two colleges of Cambridge that were accepting women in 1955. Classic. Right. Classic 1950s. If you ever want a kind of look into this time period, there's actually a sort of unsung film uh-huh. called Mona Lisa Smile. I fucking knew it. I was like, if you don't say Mona Lisa Smile. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> the movie is fantastic. Speaking of Wellesley. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's Wellesley girls and, and mm-hmm. their uh, eccentric art teacher who kind of shows them another way to live. Yeah, it's um, a great movie. I love it, it is. It is definitely very good. It's got a great cast. Mm-hmm. So she graduates with top honors. She goes to Cambridge. And while she is in England, she's introduced to a number of great poets through her department. You know, she mm-hmm. was considered kind of a young genius. And so people were happy to show her around. And uh, one of the poets that she met is a man named Ted Hughes, 1956. Okay. Uh, he was published by then, and he considered their meeting of fatal uh, set in stars and that they had mm. a tel- an Im- instant telepathic union. So they had this kind of wild, passionate connection right away. It was also a little bit violent. Uh, they met oh, at a party. Good. <laughs> right? Healthy. Mm. Hey, mm, passionate. <laughs> That's what we want. So... Um, as part of this party, uh, Ted Hughes tried to steal her earrings, uh, and she bit his face so hard that it bled. Oh, okay. Chill. Yeah. Sounds like definitely someone you should, sounds like a good partnership. A normal romance. (laughs) Yeah. She actually became rather obsessed with him. Uh, she had a great quote. Plath described Hughes as a singer, a storyteller, her lion and world wanderer with a voice like the thunder of God. And I get it. Uh, She was young. He was a little bit older. Um, He was this, you know, published poet, and he was going to show her. He was so worldly compared to her kind of strict American upbringing. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I get it. Sounds very Lord Byron, but also girl run. Uh, Uh-huh. So in 1957, they get married, and he begins to introduce her to the occult. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So the way Ted Hughes uses the occult, it's something that he grew up with. Um, these stories of, you know, Celtic gods were never far from the Zeitgeist where he grew up in England, mm-hmm. whereas they were completely unfamiliar to her. Her work was more realistic, academic, um, based in the real world and it was not familiar to her. So there's this, yeah. this taste of the exotic and it promised, he said it would, he'll, it'll make her a better writer. Um, and it has all these like ancient themes. Mm-hmm. And so they start practicing tarot, Ouija, astrology, hypnotism. When she has her first baby, he hypnotizes her to get her through the situation Hmm. Um, and she called it magnificent fun, more fun than a movie, which seems well, like a low bar for fun, but okay. Yeah. Also, you know, I've seen movies from that time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now I sound like I'm criticizing the occult, mm-hmm. which is rather hypocritical of me. Wouldn't you say? Well, I mean, I think I, I don't know if this is your reaction, but my reaction to this and why it's kind of negative at the moment is more just based on my assumptions about a certain kind of white male poet. (laughs) I think that's a fair assumption. So, Um, yeah. I'll also say that the occult can be used irresponsibly. Mm 
If you do not protect yourself, you invite things that can hurt you. And some of the things that when people are incredibly genius and have high energy and incredibly brave, they make themselves well known in Mm. the spirit world. Now, this is coming from me, who is a believer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not a believer, we'll, we'll discuss that in a second, too. Um, <clears throat> so I have no trouble believing that, as some people have, asked, have as some people have asserted, that Sylvia Plath may have been um, possessed in mm. her final days, that some of her writing may have been the result of trances, um, Basically, she went too far too fast, and Ted failed to protect her mm-hmm. because he didn't need the protection himself. Like, gotcha. if you're a 50-watt bulb, and moths are only attracted to things that are 200 watts, mm-hmm. and then you put a 500-watt bulb in the room, mm-hmm. every moth in 60 miles is going to come, right? No, yeah, I get that. Um, yeah. Me as a fairly dense person. Yeah. You're not dense. <laughs> you as a fairly dense person, please. You're willowy to, to the that last. Stuff. No, well. hardly. <laughs> hardly. I'm just kidding. Eh. So, so Ted actually thought that in addition to being a genius, she had impressive psychic ability. I have often found that these two things go hand in hand. Um, when I, I think some of you guys are aware of my friend Rebecca, mm-hmm. and Rebecca actually died nine years and three days ago. Wow. Um, I know. Uh, she died of a heroin overdose, and Rebecca had a number of suicide attempts before Mm -hmm. uh, we got to that final place. Um, She had a life that was not dissimilar to that of Sylvia Plath. She was the smartest woman I ever met. Mm -hmm. There was no instrument she could pick up. If she'd never seen it before, she'd figure out how to play it, and she would play beautiful music in five minutes after picking this instrument up. Wow. I know, she was incredibly talented, and I think that you are... You can burn bright or you can burn long, Mm -hmm. and Sylvia Plath and Rebecca... Both burned bright. Mm-hmm. So that genius kind of goes hand in hand. Um, t- so Ted thought that she had impressive psychic ability. Uh, he th- he's quoted as saying uh, her, her gifts were so large that she sometimes wished to be rid of them. And mm-hmm. we have certainly come across other psychics who have felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, where the power is kind of too great and it's all consuming and disappointing to an extent dangerous Mm -hmm. to a different extent um so at the beginning ted was the expert he had all the information um but she was a really good student and she was also a little bit competitive with ted (laughs) Uh, a couple different sources say that um indirectly that it was kind of a competition and that she wanted to be whatever he could do she could do better and that Mm -hmm. was kind of a theme in their life uh they were both poets and writers um so she eventually practiced more and went further into the occult than he did. Um, they frequently contacted, uh, using a Ouija board, uh, their dark ma- uh, dark muse, I'm sorry, who they called Pan. Um, hmm. So he's described as an old god, a god of shades, cold god. Um, so the conversations that they record... In some of her, um, like one of her poems is called Ouija. And it's a conversation between these two users of a Ouija board who are very 
clearly supposed to be her and Ted. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty transparent. <laughs> it's, it's barely hidden at all. Sylvia <laughs> and Ted become Larry and um, Sybil. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so this this old god is communicating with them through the Ouija board uh, via an upturned brandy glass, and the the god himself, while being morose and gloomy is also pretty fucking witty, kind of like Sylvia Plath herself. Mm. Um, So they were trying to find her father in the other side. Um, And then she also became eventually somewhat grateful for her electric shock therapy. Um, This torture may have been the first step to enlightenment. It may have opened up her brain to this wider experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and some people do have mental breaks like that following psycho, um, electric shock therapy. Yeah. Um, so her, her focus on her father, uh, shows up again in Ted's writings, the birthday letters, which he published in 1998. Uh, they refer to her father as the Minotaur and her, her descent into the occult is her going through the maze, trying and trying and trying to find him. But Mm -hmm. also if she does find him, it could be terrible. Kind of a fascinating juxtaposition. Yeah. So they moved to the U.S. in 1957. They're now outside of England. Uh, and they stay there for a good time. She is, um, she goes back and she starts teaching at Smith. Uh, they travel around the U.S. and Canada uh, to an artist colony um, where she finds her truly weird self, which that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1960, they have their first baby. Her name is Frida. Uh, And then that Uh fall, she puts out her first collection of poetry, The Colossus. Mm -hmm. Then she has a miscarriage. Her second child ends in miscarriage. Mm. Um, And she writes in a letter to her therapist, uh, who she saw, it's the same therapist who was giving her electric shock therapy in college, that Ted had actually beat her mercilessly two days before she miscarried. So Ted Hughes can fucking suck it. Okay, yeah, that's good. Fuck that guy. Fuck him fuck forever. Right and uh, if you know, <laughs> if you talk about Sylvia Plath in literary circles with other feminists, uh, Ted Hughes is one of the hated, one of the hated men. Mm-hmm. Uh, her eventual gravestone, Ted, put her last name as Sylvia Plath Hughes. And like a lot of feminists go and try and chisel the name Hughes off. Yes. Yes. Like he's Do had it. to replace that stone a number of times. Fuck off. Oh, Fuck that guy. Um, so around that same time as the miscarriage, um, she actually writes a poem called The Jailer, where she describes being controlled, well, one of her characters, being controlled by a brutal man. And mm. most students of her work are pretty sure she's describing Ted. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. So in 1961, they rent out a flat to a woman named Asia Wheel, Mm -hmm. uh, A-S-S-I-A, and her husband. Mm -hmm. Ted and Asia begin to have an affair. Okay. When it comes out that this affair is ongoing, uh, Ted leaves her for Asia. Asia's pregnant. The occult kind of calls back to Sylvia Plath and she creates a witch's fire. Mm-hmm. She takes hair clippings left in the sink and fingernail clippings in the trash and all mm-hmm. of their papers. Mm-hmm. And she sets it all on fire in this ritual Hell fire. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. One piece of paper escapes the fire. 
Mm-hmm. It floats out and it very famously lands at her feet. The one mm-hmm. piece of paper says nothing else except the name of the woman he leaves her for. <gasps> what? I know. Uh, so following this, she attempts another uh, suicide attempt mm-hmm. uh, via car wreck. She drives her car off the road and tries to end her life that way. Man. Um, fortunately, her kids were not with her at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, around the time that Ted leaves with Asia, they do have a second child, Nicholas. So they have mm-hmm. Frida and Nicholas. Okay. Um, and in 1962, shortly after Nicholas is born, she picks up and she takes the kids and they move back to London. Um, and that winter, 62, 63, is one of the worst on record. Everybody's pipes mm. froze. Everybody was sick. You couldn't get enough food. And she was very cut off from the world because she didn't have a telephone in their apartment. Oh, gosh. So she's alone. Mm-hmm. She's somewhat friendless. Um, she does have a great, huge suffering mm-hmm. that also yields a huge amount of work. Mm. Uh, a lot, a great deal of the poems that are published in Sylvia Plath's name are written during this period, uh, and they're published posthumously because mm-hmm. we're getting she dies February of sixty three. This is winter of sixty two. Oh gosh, yeah. So we're getting to the end. Um, a lot of people think that because her writing was so much more prolific than it ever was before, she was writing two, three whole poems a day. Wow, that's yeah. Yeah. Considering my productivity lately, that is uh, right. impressive. I washed my hair for the first time in two weeks, so I understand. Mm. Congrats. Yeah. There was, <laughs> I was getting a knot in the top of my head that was going to pull all my hair out, so. Oof, yeah, no. It was either this or be bald. Yeah. All right, so um, people thought that she was being visited by demons, uh, that her writing was being done in trances. It's very, very possible. Um, she did keep a journal, through all stages of her life, but unfortunately this last journal, which was part of her estate, mm. was so dark that Ted Hughes destroyed it. Ooh, okay. He didn't want well, their children to have to read it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of see it both ways, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not entirely against that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so she goes into a deep depression. She is in contact with a doctor. Um, she talks about her suicidal ideation she loses 20 pounds. People are congratulating her for looking so svelte. Fuck off. Uh, yeah, don't do that, guys. God, like, I've no. lost 70 pounds since I started this, and people keep congratulating me. And, like, hey, thanks, it's because I almost died. Yeah, like, oh, great. That's I should have done that all along. <laughs> right. I should have tried dying years ago. Yeah, right? For Jeez. real, because this is the only thing that matters. Just, like, don't comment on anyone's weight ever. Yeah, good policy. Unless they ask you to. So... While she was suffering so greatly, she also did a great job keeping up appearances. Mm-hmm. She did her hair every day. She did her makeup. When she went out, she looked clean and poised and presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so people didn't really think there was anything wrong with her. Yeah. Except I mean, her doctor did know the truth. And he did put her on yeah. an antidepressant. But back then, antidepressants took three weeks to take full effect. Mm. And she didn't have that kind of time. Mm-hmm. So February 11th, 1963, she actually succeeded in committing Mm. suicide. Um, She put her head in the oven using, she suffered carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, She actually did quite a great deal to protect her children who were alone in the flat with her. Uh, She blocked the windows and vents 
with tape and wet towels to prevent them from being ill, and she was successful in that. Uh, her children were nine months and two years old. Oh, my God. So Ted gets her entire estate. Fuck that man! Everything goes to Ted. Oh my god. He, like I said, he put her name as Sylvia Plath Hughes on her, um, on her tombstone. He also acted all devastated, which I think is awful fucking rich. He's quoted as saying, this is the end of my life. The rest of my life is posthumous. Oh yes, let's make it all about me. Yeah. And he pretty much profits off of Sylvia Plath for the rest of his life. Um, the one, well, I'm not sure if it's the one thing, the one book he published, but his he's best known for publishing Birthday Letters in 1998. And um, Birthday Letters is largely about his relationship with Plath mm-hmm. uh, and her, his reflections on her and her death mm-hmm. and what life is like without her and stuff like that. Um it should also be noted that the woman he left her for, Asia Wheel, mm-hmm. killed herself and her daughter in 1969. Oh and it, most people think it's because Ted was so brutal with both of them. Jeez. Man, yeah. like, you just gotta redirect. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> just just re- redirect that energy. Oh, no. Uh... There's actually, um, we are not the only ones who hate Ted Hughes. No, uh, there's I a whole literary poem about hating Ted Hughes. One moment. Mm-hmm. I'll get it for you. It's pretty great. Mm. Oh, um, Sylvia, it should be noted that Sylvia Plath was 30 years old when she passed. Wow. Wow. I'm 30. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> Radical feminist poet Robin Morgan published the poem Arraignment, in which she openly accused Hughes of the battery and murder of Plath. Her book Monster, published in 1972, included a piece in which a, Plath of, a gang of Plath aficionados are imagined castrating Hughes, oh. stuffing his broken penis into his mouth, and then oh. blowing out his brains. Oh my god. Hughes then threatened to sue Morgan. The book was withdrawn from the publisher from Random House, although remains in circulation amongst feminists. I mean, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand why the publishers pulled that, uh... Right. That's a pretty loaded gun. Oh, boy. Um, Especially for somebody who was still alive. Yeah. Um, Ted Hughes, to his credit... Never, mm-hmm. because a lot of the works of Sylvia Plath were published posthumously. In fact, she doesn't win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry until 1982. Mm-hmm. So her works like The Bell Jar, um, things like that, her collected works are published after her death. Mm. Ted Hughes did not make money off of these. Well, that's good. He actually put the money in a trust for their two children, Frida and Nicholas. Um, Frida, to my knowledge, is still alive today. Wow. Nicholas committed suicide in 2009. Oh, no. You know, he suffered a great deal from depression. Yeah. Uh, Ted Hughes himself, like I said, published birthday letters in 1998. Um, At the time, only he knew that he was incredibly ill with terminal cancer. Uh, He died shortly thereafter the publication, but it was considered a bestseller. Damn. Yeah. Come on. So one of the questions that this left me with is, what role does mental illness have on the occult? Hmm, And so I started looking into that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, yeah, because I, you know, like I, I'm not going to say that I am a beacon of mental health. For the most part, I'm pretty steady. (laughs) Right. 
Um, I have anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty much it. Um, but a lot of my, like Rebecca, Rebecca had bipolar disorder and she was the first person to ever do tarot cards with me or palmistry or things like that. Um, so there is, you know, like in our group, I know that there is a lot of people who, in addition to being practitioners, also Mm -hmm. suffer from, uh, mental health issues. Um, one of the quotes from the research that I did about the demon, the the gods and demons of writers, uh, from Ghosts, Demons, and Depression: Writers and Their Many Hauntings, uh, by Claire Cronin on the literary fixation of the supernatural, hmm. um, which was where my initial interest came to this subject. Uh, but that also brought up two articles um, about spirituality and mental health. Um, one of which is a little more conversational. Um, So basically, this is uh, God Help Us, How Religion is Good and Bad for Mental Health. Hmm, yeah. Um, The idea that religion is good for mental health springs from a God who is loving and kind, Mm -hmm. uh, and that these religious practices are, you know, helpful and pleasing, whereas uh, if you have an example that God is punishing or abandoned you, uh, that has been linked to harmful outcomes, including a higher rate of depression and a lower quality of life. Yeah. So if you have a loving God, you are more likely to have more balanced mental health. Right. Yeah, I, I get that. That was that's Of course. If you have loving parents, you're more likely mm-hmm. to have balanced mental health. And you're, if you suffer from anxiety and depression, it's like helpful to have a belief in a higher power that is comforting and loving you know absolutely that's one of the main tenets of alcoholics Mm -hmm. anonymous uh that you have to have a belief in something bigger than yourself i don't necessarily always espouse that idea Mm -hmm. um i I think there's plenty of space for atheists and foxholes i really do yeah um if if you're not familiar with that phrase there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole yes there is Mm. Uh, some people straight up don't believe in god and that's okay it's not something that they need Mm -hmm. um so there is also an article here uh this is from a 2013 actual research piece uh this appeared in the university of college london um it even has like funding source it was a cross-sectional study aiming to examine the association between a spiritual or religious understanding of life and the symptoms or diagnosis of mental health problems and substance abuse. Hmm. So effectively what it found is that spiritual people are more likely to be mentally ill. And that was a cross-sectional survey of over 7,000 people in England. Um, So 7,000 people in England is not statistically insignificant. Mm -hmm. Um, This is actually pretty well-done research. Um, the interview surveys were wide-ranging. They covered a lot of questions like happiness, phobias, anxiety disorders, alcohol misuse, eating disorders, gamble. Oh, I will. I'll also cop to an eating disorder. <laughs> um, so they were, um, it was a very formal double-blind study. Um, and the conclusion, <clears throat> like I said, is that spiritual people are more likely to be mentally ill. But it is equally valid to conclude that mental health problems cause people to develop a spiritual understanding of life. And I actually think that is significantly more relevant. Um, the mental illnesses that we have make us more empathetic, a little bit more open to the other world, looking for a better place, looking for a reason 
And that's what leads us to the spirituality. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the conclusion that I would take away from this. It's not, as the Guardian ascertains, that the occult killed Sylvia Plath. No. Her mental illness did, and her mental illness also led her to the occult. Sure. And a brutal father left led her to a brutal lover. And that's kind of a tale as old as time. Isn't that always the case. All right, so that was really sad. Yeah. I tried to be quick about it anyway. <laughs> what a fucking bummer. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Count yeah. on me. Yeah, and I've certainly done it before, too. Uh, so... But we can uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, talk about something a little more, a little, more, a little cozy, a little fun. Um, so I, uh, as I was thinking about this topic, uh, one of the first things that jumped to my mind is the queen of mystery. Uh, that actually, uh, she's referred to as the queen of death, I think. Really? Or no, the Duchess of Death. That oh, was... that's a great name. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I I am not... Honestly, I haven't really read much of her work, um, if any, um, but I'm just very excited about her as a person. Uh, so that is, of course, Agatha Christie. Oh, may I make a recommendation? Yes. So reading Agatha Christie is always a treat, but mm-hmm. if you don't have time or if, like me, following college... You were a little burned out on reading. It was kind of hard to get back into reading. Mm-hmm. Audiobooks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our boy, Dan Stevens, <gasps> does I Know. Uh, <laughs> Matthew. Uh, Dan Stevens is the star of uh, Downton Abbey's first three seasons as Matthew Crawley. And we love mm-hmm. him. Yes. We love him forever. Yes. Um, so Matthew, Dan Stevens, Dan Stevens. Uh, reads... <laughs> Uh, uh, and then there were none. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also Murder on the Orient Express. <gasps> okay. And he does a fan. Both of those are are large cast books. Uh huh. Where you'll have ten or twelve characters who are speaking. Okay. He yeah. does such a good job with the different voices. Oh, amazing! That's always a very such important a treat to me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and then it really shows a great deal of talent. Right. I could not come up with 10 different voices and then keep them straight in my mind. Right, right. Um, not only does he do that, he does it well. The voices are believable for the most part, even as women. Mm-hmm. Even, even as women. Oh, that's always so difficult for men. Yes. And I've heard it done poorly. <laughs> Which is not to say that he's perfect. Yeah. Um, some of his characters, like the, the loud American mm. lady on Murder, of the, Murder in the Orient Express. I can only imagine. I kind of think he does her bad on purpose. Well, yeah. Uh, that's fair. But That's yeah. fair, Dan Stevens. If, if you want to read slash not read and listen, which lights up the same parts of your brain, don't let anybody mm-hmm. shame you for this. Yeah. Those are two great audiobooks. Yeah, I will add to that um, and suggest that if you... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of libraries that have um, programs for borrowing audiobooks, but also if... Yes, I think it's called Overcast. There's Overcast, yeah. Um, but uh, if you don't have access to that, um, but want some some mystery read into your ear by a fantastically soothing voice, Phoebe Judge of the podcast Criminal, um, while uh, when uh, the pandemic started, she started a new podcast where she just reads mystery novels. 
and uh, she, I think she's done at least one Christie story, and she also was doing uh, Wilkie Collins is the Moonstone, which is a fantastic oh, cool. story. Wilkie um, Collins is badass. Yeah, yeah, and he's a, a contemporary, I think, of Christie. Um, or yeah, no, he's slightly earlier. He's a little bit older. He's yeah. a contemporary of um, oh god, That's another a- Dan Stevens character, uh, uh, Christmas Carol guy. Oh, 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 oh. Oliver Twist. No. Tale of Two Cities. Nicholas Nickleby. Charles Dickens. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that guy. That guy. You know, the one. The Uh, one Dan Stevens played in that one Christmas movie. (laughs) Christmas Carol, the one with ghosts in it. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of fantastic mystery novels, and I'll get into that. Um, So Agatha Christie... Uh, the Duchess of Death. She was born uh, in 1890 in Torquay, uh, which is in Devon, which is in the southwest of England. I had to look it up because it sounds a lot more exotic than it is. I hear Devon is beautiful. Yeah. I'd like to. I mean, I, I want to go everywhere, essentially. Right. Um, yeah. So her parents were uh, Clara um, and Frederick Miller. Uh, her father, uh, Frederick, was American. I didn't know that. Oh. Um, yeah. She was the youngest of three children uh, and, quote, a much-loved afterthought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's so a great. Yeah, fantastic. it sounds like she was quite a bit younger than her siblings, uh, which is how you know. Um, <laughs> Oops. Oops. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, she had kind of an interesting upbringing. Her father decided to homeschool her, uh, but for some reason didn't want to teach her to read until she was eight. Um, and she actually, uh, got bored and taught herself how to read by age five. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, she was always pretty smart and precocious. She loved, uh, making up stories and began writing poems, uh, when she was a child. Uh, her family was pretty fairly settled uh, financially for a while, but uh, her father kind of led them into some difficulties, um, which led them to them moving to France for a while. Um, Was life cheaper in France? I guess so. You don't really think about that being (laughs) the truth, but I I don't know, depending on where you are, I guess. But they were also able to like rent out their home. So that is a source of income. Yeah, yeah. Um, So her father died uh, from a series of heart attacks that were brought on by the financial stress um, when she was still fairly young, which was sad. Um, But after that, her and her mother uh, became very close. Um, And uh, so they kind of traveled around a bit. And in 1910, when she was uh, 20, she and her mother traveled to Cairo, uh, to stay for the three-month season at, at a hotel. So, like, she's living this kind of typical, uh, like, Edwardian lady life, but just, like, all over the world and having her, like, season. Um, I'm watching Bridgerton, and it's very fun. Beautiful. Um, yeah. So she's uh, she's doing this season in, in Egypt, which is interesting, I think. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she... we, and we know from, from historic documents that a lot of people did that. Uh, there were some people who really enjoyed being abroad yeah. and some English people who don't. Like uh, <laughs> referencing Down Abbey again, um, in the last season, uh, Mr. Grantham is saying he's not very good at abroad. He doesn't like going abroad. He doesn't like to travel, mm. that sort of thing. So. Which is really funny considering that the house that they film in is the 
house that the guy who uncovered right. Tutankhamun's tomb, and that's why all the dogs are named Pharaoh and like Isis, Isis and Tio. <laughs> yeah, because they have a very that house has a very deep connection to Egypt. Um, so anyway. love it. That doesn't really matter, but it's, but yeah, I guess that's, it does show that that people, English people, were uh, very interested in Egypt. Egypt mania was about to come. Um, yes, in the 20s. certainly. Mm-hmm. In typical Edwardian fashion, she makes a lot of friends during the season, and then gets invited to a lot of house parties back in England, and has suitors and all that thing, all that stuff. Um, and, and you can already see. Sorry, I'm probably mm-hmm. taking. No, no, no. Go away. Go for she, it. <laughs> Both of those, house parties mm-hmm. and um, foreign journeys, trips in Cairo, mm-hmm. both of those show up in her books. Oh, yeah, yeah. This I, Her books are very kind of influenced by the lifestyle that she led, um, which was, you know, despite her being kind of thrown into some financial difficulties early in life, like, and having to kind of make her own way. Uh, she does have that upbringing of a well-bred English lady, you know. Right. So, yeah. Um, so in 1912, she meets um, Archie Christie, um, who was an aviator. Sounds very romantic. Uh, but it sounds like it, it, the I got so one of my sources was uh, AgathaChristie.com, the official website, I guess. Um, cool. And it said that they were both desperate to get married because neither had any money. <laughs> oh, Which no. Sounds like... That's like the worst person you should marry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like... You can't a be broke really together. Bad reason. Like, if you want to get married desperately, marry someone rich. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, it was not a great reason to get married. Um, and it, it didn't prove to be super successful. Um <laughs> What year was this? So that was 1912 that they met. Okay. Um, they get married on Christmas Eve, 1914. Um, but as you might guess, um, since he's an aviator, he is serving in World War One. Yeah. Um, so they had a two-day honeymoon before he returns to the front, and then they don't really see each other much until the war's over, and then they can finally live together. And the war ends in 1918, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So that is uh, not a great way uh, to start a marriage. (laughs) No. That you did hastily. Um, Yeah. So during the war, while Archie's away, um, Agatha was working at a chemist shop and volunteering with the Red Cross. um, And... This was a really interesting opportunity for her to learn a lot about uh, medicine, but also about poison. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, this quote comes from, uh, oh, uh, th- uh, one of my favorite books, uh, The Art of the English Murder uh, by my my hero, Lucy Worsley. Um, oh, we love her. We love her. Pick it up. This book Stamp is great. Queen. Yeah, uh, but she writes that um, her boss showed her something he always carried in his pocket, a dark-colored lump of uh, curare? No idea. I don't know. The poison used on the tips of arrows by certain exotic tribes. Cool. Uh, He warned her that if uh, curare reached her bloodstream, it would kill her. Understandably, the young woman asked the pharmacist why he kept such a deadly substance on his person, and the answer was striking and intriguing. Well, you know, he said thoughtfully, it makes me feel powerful. 
Oh. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people who carry guns feel the same way. Yeah, I maybe try poison, though. Well, it's certainly a little more subtle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe poison. Maybe try that. I feel like it would be a little bit more interesting uh, <laughs> and less deadly. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, she obviously learns a lot about poisons, uh, which would come in handy later. Um, she also... So was she writing at this point in time? She's writing kind of on and off. Uh, she starts writing, like, her first short stories um, when she was, like, 18. Um, but... And and apparently she got she published those much later in life, but edited them edited them a bunch. Um, but uh, during this time, she starts writing her first uh, serious story, which is called "The Mysterious Affair at Styles." Um, oh, I don't know if you know that or if anyone listening will recognize that. But this is the first appearance of one of her most famous characters, Hercule Poirot. I love Hercule Poirot. Yes. Uh, so. Uh, apparently she was partially inspired um, by the fact that there were a lot of Belgian refugees around the English countryside. Really? Um, yeah. So, and, and uh, where she's living in Turkey, that's, that's in the south of England. So, I mean, it makes sense for refugees from the continent to kind of get there immediately and just like, man, we're not going to go any further north. Um, right. Like how there's so. a lot of Italians in New York. Exactly. Um, yeah, so she was inspired by, it's not, her, Poirot isn't, uh, based on any one person in particular, but she kind of was inspired by some of the refugees that she saw, and she invented this character who was a former policeman in, in Belgium who had, uh, come to England as a, I think, I don't know if it, I haven't read any Poirot books, so I don't know if he's, like, specifically a refugee in those novels, but... I don't think so. He kind of travels all over the world and works with all sorts of um, yeah, yeah, maybe different police agencies. Hard out. Um, so she's writing this uh, novel, and in, in 1919, um, it was picked up by John Lane, who is a publisher um, from the Bodley Head, <laughs> which I guess is the publishing company. Very strange name. Um, Mm-hmm. And he he likes the story, and he also contracts with her to write five more books in addition to the affair at Styles. Um, and he helped you know her make some edits and changes to the manuscript, including the suggestion that the final chapter uh, take place not in a courtroom as she had originally written it, but in a library. Uh, and that becomes a hallmark of her stories, but also of the entire detective genre. Like that's yes. a classic, you know, the library scene where everyone, where the detective reveals the answer. Um, a lot of people will only watch the first half of a Law and Order show mm-hmm. because the detective work is done in the first half, and then the second <laughs> half is the courtroom drama, and people are not as moved. Drama though, if it's done well, I've if never. If it's done well. To be honest, I've never seen any SVU or Law and Order at all. Um, how? I don't know. I just literally I was, how? I don't know. I was. It's more been on for like a, thirty years, and it's on every channel. I was. I was always a CSI and a Criminal Minds gal. So. Oh, so you're trash. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'll admit. That is actually not true. Hey, um, I didn't watch NCIS. <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> then we're fine. My parents were big on NCIS. So is most of America and probably a lot of people listening. And to them, I say, I'm sorry, but it's trash. (laughs) (laughs) 
I actually don't have that hard of an opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that Law & Order SVU has affected me deeply a number of times just because their crimes are so horrible. Mm. Um, but that's that's my only devotion is that that one's hurt me the most. And sure. so there you go. You know, it's fine. We all right. have a- we have all, all have our outlets. Everybody's got a thing. Yeah. yeah. Some people even like NCIS. <laughs> Some people. Uh, <laughs> We're bad. We're sorry. Right. Um, if you're offended, uh, too bad. Please don't uh, report us to Facebook. Don't add us. <laughs> so, okay, moving on before we get entirely canceled. Right. Um, so, so also in the same year, 1919, um, uh, she gives birth to her, uh, daughter, Rosalind. Um, I think she has one other child eventually, but this is her only daughter. Um, and she, so she continues writing in, into the early twenties and she creates, uh, the characters, Tommy and Tuppence, which I've never heard of. Um, but then also Miss Marple, which we all Yes. But, uh, so things get a little rocky in her personal life. Um, by, uh, 1926, uh, things were pretty bad. Uh, her mother had recently died, um, and Archie, uh, was growing increasingly distant. Um, so he, uh, was still dealing with probably a lot of unresolved issues from his time in the war. They called it um, shell shock then. We call it yeah. PTSD today. Yes. Yeah. So, it, like, I... I'm not a big Archie fan. I don't, but at the same time... We don't time, have to hate him the way we hate Ted Hughes. Exactly, yeah. Um, so he's kind of cold and distant to her. Um, and she she writes that he had his own, quote, his own determined casualness and flippancy, almost gaiety um, that about life that upset her. Because um, she was a fairly quiet and serious person. And I think he kind of... As a lot of people do when they have trauma, uh, dealt with it in a way that was just kind of like casual and like mm-hmm. joking about it. And she didn't really jive with that because um, I'm sure she had her own issues to deal with. Um, and also, it didn't help the fact that he had a mistress. <laughs> oh, so. every time. I know, right? Yeah. I know that used to be considered you know, much more normal, but I just find it abhorrent. I, yeah, I just, just, just don't do it. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, so he would, he would work all week in the city, which I assume means London because that's how they talk about shit over there. Um, and then he would spend the weekends with his mistress. So like, I don't know when she ever got a chance to talk to this man. Um, but yeah, it was it was pretty bad, and by 1926, he was. Um, they were talking uh, divorce, so um, which was t- still not easily done back then. No, no. Yeah, I mean they weren't like the royals, but yeah, it's right. still not. It's still pretty frowned upon. Um, so one night in December in 1926, Agatha left. Rosalind in the care of the maids. So they still have maids. They're, they have that much money. And drove away without telling anyone where she was going. Um, they found her car the next morning abandoned by the edge of a chalk pit several miles away. Oh, God. Did she kill herself? No. That's, uh, I mean. So I didn't know that about her. Yeah, yeah. This is, so, um, yeah. So she 
was missing without a trace and a, na- a nationwide search ensued. Um, and there were several theories that came out. Uh, some people thought it was a pl- publicity stunt for her novels, you know, being a mystery novelist. Um, some thought that she had uh, died by suicide and others thought that she might've been the victim of a crime. Oh, um, so it's not official. Like when I, I just jumped to the conclusion that she killed herself. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, one theory. Oh, many. okay. All right. So that's not done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there was, yeah, a lot of people joined in the search. Um, there were flyers and everything. Um, fellow authors got involved. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle consulted a medium. Um, I think he he, did. Yeah. I think he had one of her gloves and brought it to a medium. (laughs) Uh, and Dorothy L. Sayers, who is another mystery novelist, uh, she joined search parties, um, flyers were distributed with her a description and photographs of her in various disguises. Uh, and then 10 days later, she was found at a hotel in Yorkshire. What? Just living the life of Riley? Yeah, just, uh, just hanging out in Yorkshire. Uh, she had somehow traveled to King's Cross Station and took a train there. Um, she had Wait, checked- she was in Devon? She went from... The chalk pit in Devon? I don't know. It's because it was saying that, like... I'm not really positive where she's living at this point, but it okay. wasn't in Yorkshire. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So she hops on a train and, and travels to Yorkshire and checks into a hotel under the name Tressa Neal. Um, and hotel staff recognize her um, and call the police. And, uh, and then the police arrive and Archie arrives. And, uh, and she didn't, she apparently didn't recognize Archie. Um, and she also apparently had no memory of the past 10 days. And she was also missing her wedding ring. Huh. Yeah. So she didn't know that people were looking for her? She had no idea that people were looking for her. And she, when she learned that people had been looking for her, she was, like, surprised and also, like, why? What? No, why was I here? Like, what's going on? So was she basically in, like, a fugue state? That is one the theory. Um, yeah, there's people to this day don't entirely know. Um, wow. Yeah. There's, so there she's, is, just, she's just missing 10 days. She's just missing for 10 days. There actually is a whole episode of Phoebe Judge's podcast, Criminal, about this, I think. Uh-huh. So highly recommend. Um, so yeah, some people thought that she might have gotten concussed and developed amnesia. I mean, I suppose because if it's possible, she might have. I don't think the car was crashed. I think the car was just parked. But I don't know if she like got maybe she was attacked. Yeah, um, I don't know. Um, in she she wrote about it briefly in her autobiography um, that she wrote much later that she. She said that she had a mental breakdown, but didn't really say much else on the subject. Um, Her family said it was amnesia brought on by mental stress. Um, But uh, more recently, uh, one of her biographers, Laura Thompson, um, said that she probably likely knew a bit more of what she was doing than she let on or anyone else assumed. Um, Like pretending to be asleep. Yeah, I think it's I don't I don't really know. Apparently, she may have written a letter to her brother-in-law saying that she was going away for a while, which certainly indicates a certain presence of mind. Um and she checked into the hotel. You remember uh I said she checked in with a different name? Yeah. 
the last name Neil is the same name as her husband's mistress. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And she, she was surprised at, you know, the level of interference and concern from everyone (laughs) <laughs> to which I say, can't a woman disappear for 10 days in peace? Come on. Sometimes I think about that. Just yeah. like just fucking picking disappear. up and going away. I, mm, yeah. It's tempting, right? <laughs> right. I, um, if, if I ever really go missing, Jen, mm-hmm. I'm probably in Ontario. Okay. Stratford. Look for me in Stratford. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably be using the last name Owens or Sanderson, okay? <laughs> okay. I don't know what my first name will be. I'll work on that. But uh, there, now you guys will know how to find me. Uh, well, now you're not really going to be able to go off the grid that way. Well, um, the people who I would be going off the grid from do not listen to this show. Gotcha. <laughs> I do not have a plan, um, but it sounds nice. <laughs> Meet me in Stratford, babe. Let's go. Okay, let's go. Canada's for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> so uh, so she has all this knowledge of poison. Does she ever kill her husband? No, sadly, Boo. no. Um, they did get divorced, though. I hardcore would have killed him. Yeah. So they, they they got. It sounds like they got divorced shortly after that. Um, and people kind of had different opinions about this disappearance. A lot of people thought that she was doing it just for the attention. Which, if you understand anything about uh, her character does not really fit at all. She was a very shy and reserved person. And so to do this for national media attention just does not, does not make any sense. So I don't, I think it was just some kind of, I, I think it was some kind of mental break related to the impending divorce and just like, feeling like your whole world's crashing down around you. And I feel like that's completely understandable. (laughs) Yeah, who can blame her? I don't blame her. Um, But she nevertheless did get a bunch of attention for it. And it did uh, kind of skyrocket her to fame after that. Really? Yeah, apparently she was kind of not as well known before that. Um, But after that, that's when she becomes the Duchess of Death. Man, remind me to disappear for 10 days. I know, right? Um, I don't know that it, well, I guess, I guess she was kind of the balloon boy of her time. <laughs> uh, yeah, but people can't kind of forgave her, I guess. Um, so yeah, her books became super popular um, and they became popular worldwide, um, partly because they were easily translated into other languages. Mm. Um, apparently the sentence structure is pretty straightforward and she doesn't, she's not overly descriptive of things. Um, no. She's good at, um, I think, writing uh, true-to-life characters, um, but they're not... She's, she doesn't wax poetic very much, um, which I, frankly, admire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very easy to translate into other languages. And also, if you are learning English as a, you know additional language... Um, apparently her novels are very easy to read as in, as you're learning English. So that makes total sense to me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, partly because of those that she becomes very popular. Um, and also she, 
become successful in part um, because she was so talented at um, observing people and kind of capturing different personalities um, in writing because she was more of an observer in life than, you know, a gregarious person. She was just quietly observing. Um, And so uh, I think uh, Poirot is kind of has probably some of the most similarities to her personality wise. Uh, That's probably fair. Yeah. He's pretty reserved. He doesn't, Mm -hmm. he kind of lets people talk their way into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, the mark of a good detective (laughs) just quietly making observations. Yeah. Mm. Um, And then also she didn't have any pretense about herself or her work. She acknowledged that she was writing for entertainment and she didn't, she didn't care. She didn't think that that was it mattered. She didn't think that she had to be, you know, so important about it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I love her. <laughs> um, so, and she uh, and a bunch of other writers at that time kind of realized that um, crime writing was kind of ha- in starting to enjoy what they called a golden age, yeah. um, and they formed a club called the Detection Club, which still exists today. Cool. Yeah. Uh, It started as informal dinner parties, um, but it elevated into writing, uh, like, articles, and they even wrote novels together. Um, And so they kind of started taking themselves pretty seriously. In 1932, they wrote a constitution for the club um, and set down rules. Um, Wow. yeah. Uh, so some of the rules um, for being admitted uh, include that, quote, he or she has written at least two detective novels of admitted merit, it being understood that the term detective novel does not include adventure stories or thrillers or stories in which the detection is not a main interest and in that it is a demerit in a detective novel if the author does not play fair by the reader. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, they... they, they just felt very um, strongly about what is and is not a detective novel. Um, Club members included, obviously, Agatha Christie, uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, and A.A. Milne. Oh, Winnie the Pooh? Yeah, apparently he wrote at least a a few detective novels. (laughs) I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So they they also had some fun props, including a red robe that, like, the the president of the club would wear. Uh, They had some black candles that they would light, and and also a skull named Eric. Aesthetic. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently the skull Eric has glowing red eyes that are battery-operated, and also uh, they have recently discovered that Eric is, in fact, a female, so... Uh, Is it a real human skull? Yes. Gross. Yeah. I don't know where they got it, and I don't want to. That was the 1930s. They could have gotten it anywhere. Yeah, but I think it still exists today. Woo! Um, Interesting. Mm-hmm. So they also set down Ten Commandments for writing mysteries, which are delightful. Um, do you want to hear them? Yeah. Okay, so number one, the criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. Okay. Um, and, and some of these rules are broken occasionally. Uh, I think that one's broken by Christie at least once. Um, uh, number two, all supernatural or preternatural agency or 
agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. Number three, not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Number They're like four. little zombie gauche guys. Yeah, come on. Let's, let's, let's be realistic. <laughs> Only one secret passage, if you must. Uh, number four, no hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. That makes sense. Sure. Uh, number five is straight up racist. Uh, no Chinaman will must figure in the story. Don't know why that's there. I hope Gross. they've taken is that it still out. Part of their ten. I don't know. Gross. Yeah, it's gross. Um, number six: No accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intu- intuition which proves to be right. All right. Self-explanatory. Number seven: The detective himself must not himself commit the crime. Sure. Mm-hmm. Number eight, the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. Okay. Uh, number nine, the stupid friend of the detective, <laughs> a.k.a. the Watson, must uh-huh. not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. Also, his, tele- his intelligence must be slightly but very slightly below that of the average reader. <laughs> <laughs> was, um, was Conan Arthur Doyle in this club? Um, I don't know, but... The reason that I ask... Yeah. I was watching The Big Fat Quiz of Everything, which mm-hmm. uh, is a it's a quiz show that they do every New Year in England. Sure. So there's The Big Fat Quiz of the Year, which talks about, like, the past year, and then The Big Fat Quiz of Everything, which is just general. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had tape of Arthur Conan Doyle... Conan Arthur Doyle? Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay. Well, anyway... Um, mm-hmm. of him talking about the stupid friend. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he referenced, he made that, that exact phrase, so it just kind of made my brain light up. I think, I, so where I, I got this from Lucy Worsley's book, and uh, Doyle was quoted with an, another explanation for this, um, so it's probably that same quote, um, but I, I, don't, I don't know if he was actually in the club or if they just consult. I don't know. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then number 10, finally, twin brothers and doubles uh, generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them, which I think is you know, a good rule You know, for the most part, those are pretty good rules because a lot yeah. of corny soap operas, when they break them, we get mad. Yes. Well, and I think, well, that one immediately made me think of um, The Prestige. Yes, of course. <laughs> which, spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. But if you haven't seen the... It's so old at this point. Um, yeah, you've had a decade. You've had more than a decade. You've had more than a decade. Uh, I, that was actually a pretty good twist, but yeah, you don't want to overuse that. Oh, David Bowie's in that one. Yeah. He died uh, five years ago today. Yeah. Which uh, our friend Ash did not know about. <laughs> she didn't know David Bowie was dead? No. No. <laughs> it's, that's fine. That's uh, that's uh... <laughs> cultural difference. Yeah. Um, they should be celebrated. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Anyway. I'm, you know, just side note, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure David Bowie dying ripped the fabric of the universe and that's why everything's shit now. I, there's a thing, I think there's a compelling uh, <laughs> argument for that. I miss him all the time. Yeah. All right. <sighs> now, I'm, now I'm sad. What's up? Well, uh, let me, let's bring it back to the golden age of crime novels. Okay. Um, so, uh, 
this this interwar period um, between World War One and World War Two was uh, the golden age of crime novels. Um, and uh, somewhat, uh, the American critic Edmund Wilson speculated um, in a newspaper in 1944 that um, reading writers like Agatha Christie, uh, quote, made people feel slightly better about living in an ever more dangerous world. Mm. Um, yeah, so he just kind of theorized that, like, because they had come from a period of great uncertainty and, like, there's so much bad happening um, and so much death. And it's just kind of nice to just curl up with a cozy novel where you know that one person is bad and evil and they will be pointed out and they will be, they will, you know, face the consequences. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, and that they're caught through the means of like logic and reason and you can figure it out and you can follow the clues and there's an answer and it wraps up nicely. Um, there is some comfort in that, isn't there? Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling that right now. <laughs> so yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and certainly, uh, the mystery novels of that time period, uh, I think you could, you could criticize them by saying that they are very formulaic um, because yes. they they are, um, and I think that comes back to those those Ten Commandments is like they they did follow those rules uh, pretty rigorously, um, and so they end up kind of all sounding the same. And you could say that's a bad thing, but if you like it, then you know that there's a lot more of it. <laughs> right, so, right, yeah. Um, so. Going back to her personal life, um, Christy married... Okay, well, side note, I love that. So Agatha Christie marries... Uh, or Agatha marries Archie Christie. They get divorced. He's kind of a dick. Um, she keeps his name because at that point it was her professional name. Um, and to the point where when there's articles talking about the two of them, they will refer to her as Christie and her and him as Archie. <laughs> Which That's I funny. love. She basically <laughs> took his name. Suck it. In more ways than one. Um, so she's known as Agatha Christie for the rest of her life. Um, even though she marries a second time, she marries um, an archaeologist named Ooh. Max Malawan, um, who was 14 years younger than her. And I love it. I'm here for, for it. <laughs> and uh, it sounds like they just spent a lot of time traveling all over the Middle East, um, and he would do his archaeological digs, she would write her novels, and they just generally had a great time. Uh, she was pretty prolific at this time. She would write two or three books a year, um, and many of them did take place in the Middle East. This is the time period when she writes Murder on the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, sounds like a pretty great time in her life. Um, World War II happened. Uh, which kind of split them up. Uh, he served in, not not like on the front lines, but in like military offices in Cairo. And she, again, was volunteering back home. Um, uh, after the war, she kept writing. She slowed down a bit to, <laughs> to avoid taxes, which is hilarious. Right. Because um, <laughs> she was like, I could write more, but yeah, I don't want to pay all that income tax. <laughs> Well, and this is following World War II is the time of the Great English Austerity. Yes. They were yeah. taxing the shit out of everybody because England doesn't financially rebound until the 80s. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, it's just like a 40-year shit show. Yeah. Yeah. So she was kind of keeping on. I mean, she was pretty well-to-do at that 
time. Right. But, but she's also like, just, you know. Yeah, she's a business lady. She's shrewd. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, she kind of quietly lives her life um, at that point. Um, her last public appearance was at the opening night of the 1974 adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which starred Albert Finney as Poirot. Yeah, uh, he's wonderful in that. I haven't seen it. I it's up for free on Amazon Prime right now. Okay. Um, and <laughs> she was she was asked after the movie what her uh, opinion was, of course, and she said that it was a good adaptation, but his mustache wasn't luxurious enough. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think explains the later uh, adaptation with Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> and his it is mustache. a good mustache. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah. So after you know she had a pretty long and happy life. Uh, she died peacefully in her sleep um, on January twelfth, nineteen seventy six. Uh, <laughs> I have here that AgathaChristie.com sums her life up in a few words, uh, describing her as writer, traveler, playwright, wife, mother, surfer. <laughs> cool. I don't. I didn't know about that part, but good for her. Yeah, she sounds like a fucking badass. Yeah, she honestly sounds pretty rad. Um, yeah, she sounds like a really cool lady. Very quiet, um, but just just quietly doing her business and being cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, on to her ghost. <laughs> I was going to say, is this just a cool true crime story or? Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, so she is, in addition to the cool disappearance, which I thought was just a fun mystery, um, she uh, has, is allegedly haunting the Torquay Museum um, in her hometown Oh, I love haunting a museum. Yes. Yeah. I actually related a lot to this story uh, because I've experienced very similar occurrences. Um, so it's a, it's not specifically just an Agatha Christie museum. It's kind of their general uh, everything museum. Uh-huh. Um, but obviously they do have a lot of Christie material, um, including in the gift shop. They have a lot of her books. Um, and... Apparently, they are frequently knocked off the shelves, <laughs> which I, is I have experienced this exact thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> working in a museum with a gift shop that has books and just, you know, having things randomly fly off the shelves when they shouldn't. Um, yeah, that's a thing. Uh, so, but interestingly, in this museum, only Christie's books are targeted. Really? Yeah. I find that very interesting and fun. Me too. I, want, I wonder if it's her just being like, hey, hey, check this one out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the manager of the gift shop said on one occasion, a customer was hit twice by Christie's books on different sides of the shop. <laughs> Which is, I wonder if they went on to buy the books. Yeah. I wonder if it was like a recommendation or if she decided that they were being a bit of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, the museum has several objects from Christie's childhood home. Um, her home, her childhood home no longer exists. Sadly, it was demolished, but, um, at least they saved some things. Um, they also have several first editions of her books, which have also fallen off shelves. And there is a wooden ladder in the room that houses these historical editions, um, that is made of wood, uh, from the salvaged floorboards from her home. 
Oh, wow. So there's probably a bit of energy in there. Um, mm-hmm. And so they've had some people do uh, investigations. There was one pretty eventful overnight investigation where um, they found a finger and thumbprints on the inside of a mummy case. Uh, so it was, imagine, you know, a mummy. Apparently that one is of a child. Uh, so a small mummy. And there were fingerprints on the inside of the glass display case. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the the museum employee of me is saying, what if they were there since the last time they, they <laughs> had it open? And it's just some museum employee's fingerprints. Um, but they, I, apparently that case hadn't been opened uh, in years. And last time they opened it, it took seven men to lift the vitrine. Um, so that is... A very heavy case. Um, So it's not like it was easily done on the day, um, is the point. Um, So um, also on, I think in that same investigation, um, there was uh, an image captured of a woman that appears to resemble a young Agatha Christie. Um, It appears to be a a woman in her 20s-ish, kind of long hair hanging down around her face. Um, Her eyes appear to be downcast. um, And uh, and her facial structure, she has kind of an oval face with roundish cheeks, which does kind of resemble um, a picture of her that was taken in the 1910s. So, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll post it and y'all can see. In the 1910s, how old was she? She would have been in her 20s. Wow. Yeah. Um, and there's a the great picture of her uh, around that time um, where she has, like, the Gibson girl updo. And it Cute. Looks, yeah, it's a great picture. So, I don't know. I mean, it kind of resembles her. It, it could be her. I don't know. Could be us reading into it. It's sure. definitely, like, a very visible female form, at least. Um, and, of course, the, the investigating team you know, says there was no one else in the room. Um, obviously, it's one of those things that you just have to kind of take it on faith that they're telling the truth. But if they are, then that's a pretty remarkable picture. I can't wait to see it. Since that investigation, apparently there's been even more activity, more books flying off the shelves. So it sounds like she's kind of hanging out there and having fun. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good for her. She yeah. deserves some fun. Yeah. So that's it. That's what I got. I love it. Mm-hmm. Do we have a listener story? We do have a listener story. Okay, so this one is, comes from um, Chelsea's. Chelsea's? Spell I don't it? Know. It's spelled like Chelsea, but instead of an A at the end, it's an S. Hmm. So. Fascinating. I don't yeah. think that name's in the group. I've, I've not heard of that one. Um, but anyway, they say, hey, y'all. Um, I just found this podcast and I've been binging. I'm currently skipping around and trying to make my way through everything. I'm obsessed and I appreciate that you guys are the same kind of weird as me. Hey. Uh, that said, I have a couple stories for you guys. Oh, I um, so growing up, I lived with my grandparents for a good amount of time. They became second parents to me and had huge personalities. They bought their house in the early 60s and were the first owners. They lived the rest of their lives in this house, and my grandma passed away in her bedroom of almost 50 years. 
We lived in Virginia, and based on the street names in the neighborhood, the houses were built on an old plantation. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, live, we were on Coach House. I assume that's the name of the street, Coach House Road or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, my, fir- my very first paranormal experience I remember vividly. Uh, my grandma was in the room across from the top of the steps, and her bedroom was at the end of the hall. I was about five years old, and as I was walking to my grandma, I saw something in her room from the corner of my eye. I turned, and standing in the doorway of my grandma's room was a shadowy figure. Uh, Oddly, I remember him wearing overalls, but not being able to see any of the facial features. He waved at me, and I waved back. (gasps) When I turned from him to ask my grandma who was... Here, she simply replied in her old North Carolina accent, What are you talking about? We're the only ones home. <laughs> when I turned back, he was gone, and I never saw him again. At least he was fine. Yeah, thank God. Uh, my dad, however, swears to this day that as a kid, he woke up in the middle of the night to a woman standing over the top of him with shoulder-length hair, hands on her hips, and wearing a white nightgown. He thought it was his sister, so he rolled over to go back to sleep. He checked to see if she was still there a few minutes later, and she was. Oh, good. Still not talking, just standing there. Somehow, his crazy ass fell back to sleep. His mom and sister had no idea what he was talking about. Now, fast forward, my husband and I bought a house a couple years ago. I know absolutely nothing about the history of the house, though, and I should probably look into that. Well, my two-year-old son spotted... Where we removed a security system on the wall, it's exact. It's the exact size and shape of an outlet plate, but just a hole. We had it hidden behind a shoe cubby, but he found it the very first day. He said, that's spooky. I don't like it. <laughs> you know, oh. your little child voice. Uh, after a few days of me trying to convince him it's just a hole, he tells me, something's coming. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck that. Um, No, thank you. Um, So that's when I realized it was time to find my smudge stick. When I went outside to smoke a cigarette before cleaning the air, my son comes out and says, I don't want to go back in there. My spooky friends are being mean. No. No, no, no. It's okay to have spooky friends, but it's not okay Mm -mm. to have mean spooky friends. Mm -mm -mm. Which is the theme of our episode today. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. I got my keys out and we left. When my husband got home, I smudged the house and we haven't heard anything else about it. We still, we do still have, quote, our ghosts that we've had forever. And that's fine as long as they have uh, good intentions and don't get creepy. My son still comes to tell me there's a ghost in his playroom occasionally, but... At almost three now, he demands his own space with a get-out-of-my-playroom ghost, good energy only. <laughs> oh, my God. Good. That's awesome. Good for him. That's awesome. Imagine if Sylvia Plath had yeah. that kind of protection. Uh, he says they always go away when he tells them to. Uh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, I have a million more stories, but I won't take up any more of your time. Thank you for doing what you do. I love listening. Stay spooky. Wow, that was great. 
That is amazing. Thank you. I'm yeah. so I love it when people write in. I love our listeners. Yeah, stories. Uh, and I'll, if you have a great listener story, uh, we haven't had as many recently, so please uh, feel free to write write in. We do have a backlog, but always feel free to add more. Uh, yeah, you can yeah, write us there. at this podcast is haunted at gmail.com. Um, so yeah. We've got a couple new Patreons to thank. Yes, we do. Um, I can't remember if, I think at least one of them we thanked already, but oh, I don't remember if we thanked the other ones, so I'm just going to leave them all in <laughs> right, here. Let's do it just in case. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to leave people out. No, no. Um, so we have Haley Ward. Thank you, Haley. Um, we have Alice at Amundsen. Amundsen. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much. Uh, we have Jess Howen, who I think we already thanked, but just in case, thank you. Just in case. Hey, Jess. Hey. Uh, we have Eve Flo. Thank you, Eve. Uh, we have Araya Lofton and... Zane, Araya. Araya, sorry. And Araya would like to include a little message of love here. Oh. Um, everyone, she wants everyone to know that they are loved, supported, seen, and heard. It's an easy thing to forget after these last 462 months that were 2020 wow. and the first few days of 2021. Wow. Yes. How kind is that? Yeah, that was delightful. Thank you. Bring that energy into everything, yeah. guys. Um, and then finally, we have Mason Woods. Um, so thank, thank you, you, all of you. Uh, it's a nice little batch of patrons. Uh, we are so grateful, guys. We really are. Thank you. It, it means the world to us um, that you... And it literally, it keeps the show going. Really, for sure. Um, I know we've said it before, and we'll say it again, but without Danny, we would not be doing this right yeah, now. It's so nice to be able to... Uh, Danny to do this. Um, I wouldn't feel right about asking anyone to edit our show if we weren't paying them. Um, and um, and I know, speaking for Danny, I know he appreciates the extra yeah. work. Uh, so if you want to check out what we're doing on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash this podcast is haunted. You can find us on social media uh, listed in the description. Uh, and you can find us on our, in our Facebook group, everyone, once again, thank you for being nice, continue to be kind to each other, uh, and we'll get through this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Yes, we will. I think things are going to get better after the 20th, guys. Mm. Everyone's hackles will come back down. Hopefully. We're not out of the woods, and it, it's not like everything will be great by the 20th, but, <laughs> you know... We're working on it, though. All right. Well, my darling, it's four minutes to my bedtime, yep. kidney yep. bedtime. Uh, so I'm going to see you in a fortnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and until then, stay spooky, motherfuckers. Stay spooky. Bye. Bye.